0: Hello everyone, welcome to the International Business Podcast. If you work across time zones, borders and cultures, this is the show for you. I'm Leonardo, founder and host of the show, but let's make it simple and just call me Leo. I'm based in Shanghai and I'm accompanied by two co-hosts, Stefano, based in Paris, and Audrey from San Francisco. Coming up on today's episode...
1: Because every, every generation supposedly would have their own preference, their own style, their own music, their own food, their own this and that. But Coca-Cola is the only brand I can think of which has really gone through how many generations and still staying young and staying relevant. Stephen brings extensive management insights from leading multinational and local companies
0: in Asia and the USA. With a proven track record throughout the value chain, The leadership roles in consumer, brand innovation, media and entertainment, and manufacturing to name a few. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform. You
1: can find more details in the show notes. Now let's get into today's episode.
0: Hi, Steven. I'm glad to have you on. Welcome to the International Business Podcast.
1: Thank you, Leonardo. Very excited to be able to join your podcast.
0: I like to start every conversation with this question, Stephen. What makes you an international professional?
1: Just the number of cities which I worked in, you know, which qualifies me to be an international executive. I was born in Shanghai. You know, a family ran away from the communists and landed in Hong Kong. And then I grew up here. And I started in a broadcasting industry, you know, producing youth program, music programs. And then I moved into advertising with Ken Erickson. And then I became a client, joined a Coca-Cola company as the chief marketing officer for Asia, opened up China. And then I started to travel through every single country in Asia for a number of years, working with bottlers, advertising agencies, and all the rest of it. And then I moved to Taiwan, where I became a bottler. That's a manufacturing side of the Coca-Cola business. And I get to practice what I preach. And the company promoted me to the United States. And I started in uh, Houston, Texas, where I worked for the Minute Maid Juice Company. And I did a few interesting things when I uh, got promoted to the headquarters of the Coca-Cola Company in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, my citation was agent of change. You know, my nickname was Genghis Khan because they don't have the Chinese at the time. It was four thousand Texans and one Chinese. <laughs> and then I, in the global marketing of Coca-Cola Company in Atlanta, I get to see you know every single country, every single culture in two hundred. Uh, business units around the world and then that's really just a wonderful time to to deal with the topic of international executive cross-border cross culture and it's just fantastic and then i came back uh, after six years in the u.s back to hong kong and then i became a retailer and then uh, joined asia's biggest uh Retailer, the Jardine Company, which owns 7-Eleven, Mannings, Welcome, IKEA, uh, a lot of the big, big retail brands, and I learned a few things. What I call the buy side and the sell side. You know, when I was at the Coca Cola's company, I mm-hmm. sell to the retailer. When retailer, I buy from the BNGS and the Cokes and the fashions and everything else. And then I uh, was called by headhunter, and then became a a professional service firm's president of Nielsen opened up China, and uh, collecting intelligence. You know, in those days, it's like a new concept. You know how you know in a in a country where uh, information was um, I guess tightly controlled. You know, to to be able to uh, monetize the whole idea of uh, who does what, where, when, why. You know, all, all the things which. Uh, People need to know to, to run their business, and I did a news and company uh, across Asia, and then I ran the business outside of US. And I once your name is with the headhunters, then they call you, they they sell you like like a, like a property. You know, it's another opportunity. So I was uh, move on and uh, became um, chairman of a public company, which is the first media company. Uh, listed in the Big Board of Hong Kong Stock Exchange, uh, owned by Clear Channel, which is listed in New York Stock Exchange. And uh, that's a classic case of uh, cross culture because uh, the largest shareholders in the American company, and they bought a Chinese company uh, which runs uh, the bus shelter business in China. You live in Shanghai, you understand. And uh, that company is called White Horse. And uh, the Chinese partner did not speak English, and the American partner did not speak Chinese. So, my bicultural background came in and brought the two partners together. And then we did an IPO in Hong Kong, and Goldman Sachs was our banker. And then it became the first media company listed outside of um, you know, in Hong Kong as part of China, but it's uh, in the main in major. Uh, capital market and that has been hugely successful bringing the the, what I call the brands and the consumers together you know so when you're waiting in the bus when you're driving your Ferrari through the streets of uh, Waihailu you would see you know the new noodles the new fashions you know all the what I call at sea level you know SEE you know you can see what's going on as 24-7, you know, before internet becomes such a big thing, you know, because you cannot turn it off the bus shelter, billboard advertising is on every minute of the day. And so that became very popular, both for the main street advertisers and for the consumers, and of course, for the capital market. That whole business was sold in 2008 in the financial crisis, and then uh, the budget shelter were very smart. And it was sold to a couple of private equity uh, firms. And then it's still uh, just recently been, been privatized. And there's a French outdoor company called JC Deco. And then that's sort all, all, all became one. And then uh, the last public company CEO job there was the media entertainment. Uh, for those who understand the Chinese culture, there there is a character in China called Xiang Yang Hui Tai Lang. I don't know. Do you have
0: any children? In 55 days, more or less. I'm going to get the first one.
1: Wow. Okay. So, you know, he or she, we watched the Chinese cartoons. And then uh, there's a very famous character, which uh, I was the CEO. And then we did a few things. You know, Disney became our licensee. It never happened in the history of Disney because they own everything. As you know, Marvel, Star Wars, Pixar. But then because that character, it's a uh, indigenous it's local, it's, it's very Chinese, and uh, it would talk about the, the smelly bean curd, the to fu I'm sure you know in Shanghai, so so the sort of topic where the, the foreign media company would not deal with, and then uh, like all, all media business at the end, it's, it's all very local, and uh, it, it became very successful, and then three years later, we sold it to a, to a lo- local uh, animation company. And then I run my own consulting business, you know, helping companies, helping, you know, individuals, you know, how to do better in a cross-culture, cross-border, and by focusing on consumers.
0: So how did you use a timeless consumer centering strategy to build an amazing career across a wide range of industries, both in Asia and in the world, Stephen?
1: Because that's uh, kind of, breaks down the 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 silo. You know, traditionally people would say, you know, you're a fashion guy or you're an education guy or you're an IT guy, you know, you are a hotel guy. The reality is every single one of the industry which I, I worked in, you know, which you you are you're working on, at the end there is somebody who is buying it, who is watching it, you know, who is supporting it. And that somebody is a consumer. So, for a fashion company, you know, Louis Vuitton, I'm sure they spend a lot of efforts to understand the trends. you know, what's the next color, what's the next fashion where the consumer would be willing to pay through their notes to make, go for it and soft drinks and hotels and airlines. and so. I always, you know, talking to friends in the, in the in the executive search industry, you know, they say, oh, find me a hotel guy or find me an IT guy. <laughs> I just thought I've always laughed at them because there was a lot of successful examples across the history of a Fortune 500 company. You know, one of them is IBM. You know, I think it's before your generation. It was used to be a, a mainframe company, you know, selling big box machines until somebody who Who's famous for selling Oreo cookies, you know, with no 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 IT background, a guy called Lou Gershner, He eventually wrote a book, you know, how do you teach elephant to dance? So IBM sort of went through the transformation, become a software company, a consulting company, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And I just today, you know, Silly Citibank announced that they are appointing a new CEO, a lady who's gonna run the whole wealth management business across Asia. And she was a Procter and Gamble person say, wow, you know, your banking industry, you know, why would you bring somebody who who sells shampoos? Because that's somebody understand consumers, you know, whether it's the. So, so that to me is the most single important topic. You know, hopefully through this half an hour, I'll give you examples and examples of why this is so important for every single executives or companies or to, to look at it from a consumer perspective rather than say uh oh you know i'm in fashion business you know you don't you don't understand you know you are you are you are inserting baked beans you know you, you know we, we we don't understand each other and, and then that, that that to me is the biggest opportunity you know for companies for executives to truly think outside the box you know think beyond whatever you're doing right now to uh, look at it back to where it all, all started, even on the B2B, you know, when I was president of Nielsen, you know, it sells the data to PNG, you know, to uh, Chanel, to all the different companies. But those data is, is about consumers. It's B2B to C. So ultimately that's where all the money and all the insights are from. And I learned that from, uh, you know, the Asia's biggest retailer, you know, a retailer, it's all cost. You know, you're buying stuff, you're building factory, you're having a main, you know, the website, you're online, offline, until consumer clicks and buys the stuff. You know, there's nothing. It's just all cost. You're spending a lot of money, a lot of effort building something until somebody picks it up, clicks, and buys it, and then and then everybody then are in, in business. So, so this whole consumer-centric is really the thing I learned you know, over the years from different industries, from different countries, from different cultures.
0: I couldn't agree more, Stephen. Now I work in the, let's say, fashion education industry. But until two years ago, I was actually working medical devices. So now I talk with young fashion students interested in the luxury and in the fashion management courses. But really, two years ago, I was talking to orthopedic surgeons. So we were talking about what endoprosthetics or what prosthetics they needed for various operations. So it's difficult and you shouldn't label people just with one sentence, IT guy, fashion guy, or so on and so forth, because the the interconnection that I see and you've been seeing uh, in the global landscape is absolutely complex, but interesting. So I guess that I wasn't hired in my current job because of my fashion skills, because I didn't have any, but there's there's always, there's always something that you can take from other industries and perhaps a new perspective uh, uh, is also needed sometimes. So you mentioned case studies. I would like to ask a few case studies or insights on uh, successful cross-border or cross-cultural activities that you had during your experience or something practical from which the audience can learn from.
1: Yeah. I'll use the most obvious example is the brand
0: Coca-Cola. Who doesn't know Coca-Cola?
1: Exactly. It's uh, probably the most cross country, cross border, cross generation. The company was founded in 1886 for 135 years Coca-Cola has only one target consumer, it's the young people. It's easier said than done because everybody talks about the new CEO of New World, K11 talks about, you know, the Zoom, the X, the Gen X and all that, 40% of the population responsible for 80% of the consumption. But how do you be relevant to young people, to the consuming generation? every generation for 135 years because you know you will soon have your the next generation of uh, Leonardo and uh, he or she may not like the same brand you do it's just the the, the famous name called generation gap because every every generation supposedly would have their own preference their own style their own music their own food their own this and that coca-cola is the only brand i can think of which has really gone through how many generations and still staying young and staying relevant and i learned that at the few you know when i was in asia you know when i was charged to to bring coca cola into china the, the chinese brand name of coca cola it uh, means joyful and delicious coca cola so it's phonetic and semantic so it's culturally very relevant everybody loves it that's like the gold standard which sounds like the original English name, Coco Cola. And the literal meaning is delicious and joyful. Wow. So then we have to bring the brand or sprite, you know, coming in, into the Chinese market, crossing from an en- English language to a Chinese language. And the traditional translation is phonetic. So then you, at the, at the time, they say a lot of signs throughout many of the Asian markets as no spitting said no spriting <laughs> so so, so it, that, that doesn't really sort of very appetizing to, to deal with the phonetic so the chinese name for sprite now is called shui bi which means snow jade snow is cool thirst quenching jade is very chinese green color which color the bottle and it's quality so i came up with a name which then phonetically share vegan Sprite, you have some similarity there. And then the, for those who do not speak English, they look at it as snow, cold, cool, jade, quality, green. So so those are just specific examples of how you cross the culture, cross the borders and talk to the consumer that you are, you are dealing with, you know, the 1.4 billion peoples. And uh, and then the staying young every generation that's sort of a another another podcast. How do you do that? You know, because every country, but the globalization there is a big debate. You know, is is that a good thing or bad thing? The reality is, whatever is the commerce definition of globalization is one thing, but the youth culture, the pop culture, is globalized. You know, without without anybody really pushing. <laughs> if somehow, somewhere, they watch the same movie, they watch the same cartoons, they watch the same fashions and all the rest of it. So, so to be relevant to young people in, in 200 countries, it's a it's a it's a real life examples. And it go, goes on on and on and on and on. And the second example I have is is a retail brand. It's a brand called 7-Eleven, you know, you I'm sure you're familiar with. I don't know how much you know the history of it. You know, it's a, it started in Dallas. It's an American brand. And then like retailers, Europe is a good example. They, they have certain opening hours. You know, this is nothing to do with COVID, you know, like they, they don't work as hard, you know. So 7-Eleven thought, you know, they open at seven o'clock in the morning until 11. So that was a breakthrough at the time. And that brand, it's a, obviously hit a hit a consumer button you know, it serves the needs, you know, it's convenient, it's it's clean, it's nice, tidy, you know, and open longer hour. They start to go cross country, go to Japan. And the Japanese obviously are very, very smart, creative people to localize it, to adapt it. And that's where the whole famous point of sale system, the whole technology came in. And every retailer, if you follow the Publicly traded retailer company. Every time they get into trouble, whether leaning or LVMH, it's the inventory. Oh, they got they got the wrong color. <laughs> you know the warehouse is full of that stuff. <laughs> they have the discount. Da 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 da. So the 7-Eleven franchisee in Japan thought, you know, if they can create a system where there are zero inventory. Wow, how do you do that? So you don't have to build a warehouse. You don't have to da 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 da. So it's the whole technology of the point of sale system. So every morning, they, everybody comes in to buy coffee, that, 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 that. All, all, all of those who are listening to this podcast understand, you know, the, the scanning, you know, the, the QR codes, you know, that, that's, that's the whole technology uh, behind the whole uh, transaction. So that point of sale system, the 7-Eleven franchisee in Japan, and they, that becomes the ordering system. So, the consumption every morning, whether it's coffee or croissants or noodles, and that order goes directly to the supplier. So, the, so they, they don't have to deliver the stuff to the 711 warehouse. They deliver to store number 1062 at Ginza on the exact number. So, that is a revolutionary concept at the time. And then so they, they lower their cost. They don't have uh, their own distribution system because the supplier that does the distribution, they don't have a warehouse. And then yes, they have a little bit of a capital expenditure of buying a high high tech system, but it's uh, refreshing for the, for the store manager, for the consumer and, and for the business. So the whole, and then Taiwan did exactly the same. So all the international licensee franchisee has become hugely successful You know, using the original concept of a convenience store, and that was in the 1980s. The savings and loan crisis and 7-Eleven parent company in the U.S. got into trouble, and the Japanese licensee have a reverse takeover. So the brand is now owned by Japanese. I don't know whether you're aware of it. You know, there are. a couple of brands, you know, which used to be in one country. Now it's owned by another another country. You know, China is a good example of buying the IBM personal computer, the Lenovo and all the rest of it.
0: Stephen, who has been your most important professional mentor?
1: It's a guy called Douglas Daft. And then he's the, the retired chairman CEO of a global uh, Coca-Cola company. He is a humble Australian. You know, he doesn't have an MBA. He was a teacher in, in, in Australia. And then he obviously has a very, very consumer focus, kind of a passion or curiosity. He joined a Coca-Cola company in Indonesia. You know, that was close to Australia. So he was a country manager and then, try to bring the whole idea, you know, the Coca-Cola system, the magic and the business models, and then learn, we'll work his way through Asia, basically. And then I was the, the the top person in McKenna Erickson, the advertising partner of of Coca-Cola. And then he and I kind of basically go through the whole Asia-Pacific and then working with the bottlers, working with the consumers, working with the retailers, trying to figure out stuff. So he he sort of brings the Western view, I guess. I, I bring in the, the Chinese, the Asian, the Malaysian, the Thai, the Indonesians. And then we we basically kind of, the one plus one becomes two, you know, we, we 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 together, and then he uh, he just did extremely well, and then all, all the way to the, they that's also interesting about the, the the culture of the corporate culture of the Coca Cola Company. You know, uh, since 90 percent of the Coca Cola's profit are made outside of the United States, so the people the foreigners are actually doing very very well because they what they managed to success successfully done. And Japan is a very good example as well. Japan actually makes more money for Coca-Cola than Coca-Cola USA, which also is like unthinkable. You know, like how can an overseas division an overseas country? And uh, I always try to try to summarize it when I go to some MBA school to share the case studies. You know, there's always three reasons. (laughs) One of them is of your very strong local partners. You know, in Tokyo, there would be the Mitsubishi. In Osaka, there will be Misui. So every single big Japanese conglomerate has a part of the Coca-Cola franchise in each part of. It. So, for example, in Hong Kong, there will be Swire Group, which owns Cathay Pacific, and you know, all the rest of it. In China, it would be the the Liang, the China Foods Group, the coca You know, so so every every country you you go into for the parent company to be successful to cross the culture, cross the border, they have a very strong local partner, because uh, Squire knows it's been in Asia for 200 years. They they, they know how to do business, and Kaifco is owned by the Chinese government. You know they 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 buy rice, they buy sugar, they buy everything. You know so so again you know that so they are the cultural. Ambassadors or cultural navig- navigators through all of it, and the second reason where Coke Japan has made a lot, of, lot of uh, amazing, you know, success is the de-seasonalization of the business because soft drink by nature is, you know, there is the four season. The summer you sell more, the winter you sell less. You know, people don't drink as much cold beverage, and the local partner are very innovative. They came up with. Hot beverage, and then they have to get approval. You know, into from Atlanta, it's actually a coffee. They say, oh, so Atlanta say, no, coffee is Nescafe, coffee is Starbucks. You know, Coca Cola don't want to do coffee. They say, no, no, it's a coffee-flavored soft drink. So the Japanese are very, very smart. So by the the time they get, because they're doing so successful, so the current company, of course, would support them and they don't even have a brand name. So on the way out to the airport. So Atlanta is in the state, Georgia. So they thought this name is pretty good. So if you go to Japan, you will see a coffee called Georgia Coffee. And the launch commercial as done by Dentsu, which again is a big Japanese, the biggest Japanese advertising agency and uh they remake the movie gone with the wind i don't know uh, you, you you're familiar with this movie
0: yes i watched it
1: yeah yeah but it's, it's like ben Hurst, so one of those movies, at the time you get in submission you go out and have a coke and they go back to watch the part two <laughs> <laughs> it's like cinema paradiso and then that movie is basically it's the civil war the american plantation it's very american and then I don't know how much you follow the Japanese advertising. They would, they would sometimes go very very Japanese, and then sometimes they would go very very uh, American, you know. And um, and so in this case, they would have a look-alike Clark Gable, which was you know the, the famous star of uh, of Gone with the Wind. So at the end of, of the whole remake of the movie, he would hose hose a can of Georgia coffee. And they say, instead of going with the wind, he say, come with the wind, Georgia coffee, American-style coffee. At, at the time, the Japanese did not travel as much as, you know, they do not know Americans are not very famous for coffee, Italians would. You know? so, but because it's, it's very gimmicky, and then so very interesting, they, they thought American-style coffee, what does that mean? And the third point is distribution. And Coca-Cola company has a slogan or, or description, it's called Within Arms Reach of Desire. So whenever you want to Coke, they don't want you to walk a mile for a camel. They want you to be able to just uh, call the corner in the 7-Eleven store and just at your home, there is a two liter bottle within arm reach of desire. And in Japan, I'm sure you, you've been there, they are the world's highest per capita vending machines. So everywhere you go, There is a vending machine, there is a Coke machine, and there is the Georgia coffee. And then final piece is the seasonalization. It's very high-tech, but it's very simple to turn a vending machine from a cold beverage to warmer. So you get hot coffee when you're skiing down from in Hokkaido. So all the ski slopes and all all the coffee in in wintertime becomes the hot machine, so you have the hot coffee, you know, the eventually UCC, Polka, everybody follow. So, Georgia was the beginning of that. So, so, those are the three things where that makes the whole Japanese Coca Cola system eventually makes more money than the US, <laughs> and from innovation, from technology, from good partnership, and from the seasonalized the business.
0: How to seamlessly connect? lifelong education, lifelong theory, with actual professional practice? How do these two combine?
1: I, I, I learned early in my in my career, you know, everybody wants to be leaders, and leaders are learners. You know, you cannot lead if you don't keep refilling, you know, your own, own bandwidth, you know, the the O2Os, you know, all the, the digital transformation, the stuff that's going on around you. You go back, young people, you know, what are the trends, what is important to them, the relevance, the values. And, and those are important learns, you know. Now China has a phrase called uh, the soft power, you know, because it's easy to touch a machine, it's easy to, to turn on a switch, but what is behind all of it, and how do you? and serve it up, you know, in a way there are, a lot of the learning is just everything around us. You know, the the success of Steve Jobs, the success of iPhone is, yes, there's a lot of technology, but consumers do not need to know any of that. (laughs) You know, the Opals, the Vivo. you know, I'm sure they're great, Huawei, they're great technology, but the end is going back to the point of consumer. Is it easy to use? Does it take good selfies? you know can i can i play games on it and and it's the whole consumer centric approach to everything and then in order because consumers are very fickle you know they change so you have to learn you have to be a finger on the pulse you have to be curious you know everything you have learned you know when you were 20 change when you're 30 when you're 30 you know change when you're 40 and every country, every culture, every border, and you know, in a country like China, every region would be very different. You know, the famous third tier city, first tier city. You know, their whole values systems are very, very different. There's the success of Ping Dou versus uh, some of some of the original first movers. You know, they hit the button of changing consumer trends, and also the the whole idea of research is looking back. And then the whole idea of pre search, you know, vision is a very lofty word. But at the end of the day, it is what is important. You, you cannot drive a car by looking at the rear mirror. And so, unfortunately, research is all about the past. You know, it's how, as a leader, you'll be able to see what is coming. You know, iPhone is a good, good example. If you do a lot of research, I should ask people what do they not like about the traditional analog phones? What do they want? They will not be able to tell you they want a wireless. They want a mobile. They will be able to tell you maybe smaller, maybe different color, <laughs> maybe the dial should be voice activated, but they would never be able to tell you you know, something which does not need a wire. <laughs> something that you can buy stuff, something you can listen to music with. So this whole finger on the pulse, understanding and a vision and and looking into the future is what all leaders are charged to do.
0: So, Stephen, you have a very interesting and extensive management experience across companies in Asia and in the U.S., both multinational and local companies. Let's make it practical for perhaps the younger part of the audience that listens to the show. What is the one piece of advice you give to someone just starting his or her career?
1: I actually have been thinking about this question quite a bit. I sort of answer it in a roundabout way because when I was in Atlanta and uh, my secretary can't pronounce my name, you know, Jung, you know, it's not easy to pronounce. So she would answer the phone, the office of Stephen Young, Stephen with the V, and Young without the O. The so Young is easy to pronounce, so it's a Young without the O. I thought, well, that's pretty cool. And it's like the letter O. And over time, then I thought it's actually Young, without <laughs> getting old. It's forever young. That's the piece of advice I would give, because I. I look back at all the stuff that I've done. You know, it's it's. Of course, there is a lot of luck, a lot of uh, you know, somebody smarter than me, sort of giving me the opportunity to 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 meet the right people, the mentors, the country. And it's more attitudinally, you know, because young people are are curious, young people are optimistic, young people think tomorrow is is going to be better than today. You know, except uh, Tang Ping. You know, there was a a a kind of a phenomenon that some young people think. You know, the world is not fair. The world is messed up. I'm not going to work hard anymore. And I will ask them to please don't don't do that because the world belongs to the young generation. <laughs> and uh, for those people who joining the the whole the whole society after schools, it's just to. To, to, to bring out the best of what young people represent. They are they are, I wouldn't say they are arrogant. They are they are they are ambitious. You know, they want to change the world. You know, they they believe in themselves and and keep that attitude because that means you are curious and also at the same time you're humble. Leaders are learners. You know, there are things you, are, you have not learned, you know, the whole society, you know, is the world's biggest school. You know, I, I always sort of feel they, they pay me a lot of money to be a CEO, to be this, to be that. At the end, they, they they teach me a lot of stuff, you know? <laughs> you know, inside a company, of a media company, of a technology company, of a Coca-Cola company, big companies, small companies, you know, startups. and And if you keep that attitude to learn, and to 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 be curious, you know, you will do well, you know, and then you 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 will find things which really fascinates you, that, that that you you want to give it twenty four hours of a day, not because Jack Ma has you to, it's because you want to, because you you want to do that, and 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 that's that, that would be the one piece of advice. Just don't 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 give up on, you know climate problem, don't give up on politics, don't give up on COVID, don't give up on, you know, Jeff Bezos already did it, you know, Elon Musk has done it, you know, and I'm not going to be able to be like him. Just, uh, you know, because you know, I'm sure Elon Musk, you know, he, he never thought he would be able to do what he did, you know, because he's, he's a visionary, you know, he, and then he put his energy behind it, you know, and it's it's just the whole what people expect young people to do you know, because they, they 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 should be able to do better than you me and all of the people currently running the world or running the business
0: i've got one final question i ask everyone who comes on the show please share with us one memorable moment from your international career and that could be a funny a catastrophic or a successful episode your pick kind of funny,
1: also also insightful. I was in Houston, and I did an Olympic course marketing program, get endorsed by President Bush. It was all very hugely successful, 4,000 Texans and one CTI Chinese. So they were sort of brought, me, asked me to go to the conference room and, and say, oh, we have a special meeting, did it done. And I walked in, the conference room was decorated with black balloons, I was 40, and then they put a wheelchair and asked me to sit in the wheelchair. They have a surprise birthday party. So somehow the culture, you know, when you reach 40, over the hill, you know, so, (laughs) and I was shocked, you know. I said, geez, you know, 40, I'm just having fun, you know, (laughs) and then you give me this party go over the hill. It was just sort of black humor. So so that that sort of hit me and and brings back to the whole idea of, you know, I'm just starting, you know, and then obviously after that I did a few more things. You know, I did not go down the hill. (laughs) I I I did not finish at 40. And 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 the whole idea of um, of staying young. And eventually, as I mentioned, when I when I got promoted from Houston to Atlanta, you know, the citation was agent of change. And they would say, you are Genghis Khan. You know, you 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 came in and you changed everything. Because when I walked in, it was all of the MBAs, from Harvard, from Yale, from everywhere, Cambridge, and they were doing segmentations, you know, made, made with more juice, you know, more, more vitamin C, more this, more that, less that, rather than looking at the big brand. What does this brand really stands for? And how do you bring it back to the magic Oh, this is the best you can have for your family. It's through the Olympic program. I managed to get the Americans to be patriotic. It is the best because they will make a contribution to support the Olympic team. So, so that becomes a course for marketing, best for the country, best for your family, best for yourself, because the Olympic hopefuls, you know, are going through what you are going through. You know, 9.30, 10 o'clock, doing a podcast, trying to you know create a a new exciting initiative and that's the olympic dream you know before they get the gold medal you know before you your podcast become a gold podcast you have to go through everything we're going through right now so that the relevance to the consumers and uh and all of that is they they don't probably they don't teach you at business schools so so when i brought all of those in they would say wow this is all very fresh very interesting, very world-changing, agent of change. You know, you, you managed to convince the Americans, you know, as a, as a Chinese, that doing something good for your body, good for your family, good for your country, you can do all of that just by buying my product. And uh, I did a couple of big media stuff as well. I, I bought a uh, Ro- Roblox. There's 200 cable satellite channels, 8 o'clock. And then they have the president of the United States. It's say Olympic journey. is a long journey. You know, people need to support each other. And then you see a real athlete getting up five in the morning, jumping down the diving board. And then coming up, if you don't support the athletes, life will take him somewhere else. Support the dream. So that's basically the commercial. Rather than say, buy one, get one free, you know, discount today. <laughs> so you go go to the highest ideal of why people do what they do. And then also the work on the employees. You know, at the time there was a, I used a song called "Wind Beneath My Wings." Do you know the song?
0: No, I'm not sure I do, Stephen.
1: It's basically talk, talk about the, and some heroes. When you, when you see a bird flying, you, you don't see the wind. So the song is talking about, you know, the bird can fly because there are wind supporting it. So my secretary was crying, you know, so I thought, wow, no, I did not realize I was doing something so meaningful. And so everybody was very motivated to to, to support the whole cross-media integrated marketing. That was the terminology I created at the time to basically bring all of the consumer, retailer, employee messaging all into one seamless package. And that's why, you know, I got the agent of change title. I got the Genghis Khan title for, for doing something which I believe is obvious. But until it's done, you know.
0: <laughs> Stephen, to wrap this up, tell us who should connect with you after listening to this episode. And tell us a little bit more about your current role.
1: I run a consulting practice. I sit on a couple of boards. So for those who who wants to wants more you know of, of my knowledge my experience to help the company to help the individuals career please contact me and um, and i help different boards to do the ipos you know to do the capital markets to connect main street and wall street because my career has helped me Explain to the money guys why you need to put money with, with this particular idea. So all the startups or entrepreneurs who has a big idea but couldn't find enough investment. You know, even your podcast, you know, your international podcast, which you be able to identify, you know, your counterparts in the top 10 countries in the world? You know, should we buy them up, <laughs> roll them up, form a coalition? So so they'll they be able to immediately get to the the most fascinating podcast platform. So it, it's it's consistent with 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 everything I've done. I, I believe in working together. You know, I use LVMH as an example, Richmond as an example, all the brands, why do they they want to be part of the Arnold's family? But because it creates scale. Yeah. It, it and also allows the, the podcaster to do what they do best and somebody else can deal with the technology the compliance the monetizations you know a lot of the so-called boring stuff you know where the you know in the in, in the case of lvmh you know the creative people can do the creative to do the designs and then all the manufacturings and all the distribution and all the running up stores, and then somehow, you know, there is a central kitchen. <laughs> and then that that's that's why you, you see, you know, all these, you know, in the fashion business, they are all part of the two, three companies. You know, it used to be, the they're all individuals. They are all, you know, Armani's, they're all Hermes, they all, and now they're all part of one of the three groups. So that that to me is what we, we can now learn from. You know whether you're in podcasting, whether you're in education. You know I'll introduce you to my friend back in Italy. He's in education. You know are there things you can do together to connect the dots? You know you are in China. He's in Italy. And and to me that that's really the future of, of it's not decoupling. <laughs> it's, it's actually working finding ways to to work together because I truly believe one plus one is eleven.
0: Steven, I want to thank you for your insights. Thank you for joining us on the International Business Podcast.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity.
0: You can find the podcast on all the major platforms. Make sure to subscribe. Do not miss the weekly episodes. And are you an international professional? Connect with us on LinkedIn to come on the show for now. Cheers.